Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. Good to see you this morning. You too. You too. This cold, cold morning in New York. Um, so here we are again. And and we talked last week a little bit towards the end about process theology. Remember we mentioned this. Um, and this sort of idea of what it means to think about God as like creator or creation or sort of like a process of becoming, right? And so we're gonna we're gonna pull on that thread a little bit. And I um, so I preach about this not infrequently. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Actually, this idea of sort of like becoming or humans as participants in creation, right? And one of the things I was thinking about um, was this poem by W. H. Auden. It's titled "The Shield of Achilles," and I read it sometimes to my people. Um, and essentially, it's it's a poem in which Achilles' mom is sort of standing behind Hephaestus, watching him make a shield for the hero, Achilles. And she's looking for things like, um, it starts, she looked over his shoulder for vines and olive trees, marble, well-governed cities, and ships upon untamed seas. But instead, Hephaestus is putting like the reality of human sort of existence and, and history, right? And so it goes on in that, just that first stanza, and I will not recite the whole poem to you, but in that first stanza, it goes on, but there on the shining metal, his hands had put instead an artificial wilderness and a sky like lead. And so it kind of, it, it this poem like sort of speaks to all the different things, good and bad, that humans create in and amongst each other, right? The ways that we are, um, I don't know the ways that we are creators, but but in ways that sometimes go awry, right? And I always think about this poem when I think about what it means to participate in making the world. Um, and so I've been thinking about this question of like divine as forge or forger, right? Divine as as process, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're just going to like see what we see what we come up with and what we think about this because it's a big topic. Well, and the idea of divine as creator for you know peoples of the world for you know since we were peoples we've been asking this big question about like, how did the world come into being but today we're really talking about smaller ways that we are co-creators of the world not why are there trees but how is it that we cultivate gardens i mean how all of the ways that that the divine um creative spark is part of what it means to be human because we are all we are creators of a lot of things right we're creators of of families we're creators of of organizations of justice we create all kinds of things this morning i've been thinking a lot about how we create art right that nothing there was nothing and now there is something and that that's all part of this divine creative spirit that is part of who we are. 
Well, and that's, I should say, you and I are sort of working off the same base assumption, right? Which is that the act of creation is a holy act, right? And that humans have this innate impulse to participate in creation, right? And that 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 sort of by definition then, right? Some There's some law of like logic, I'm sure that I don't know the name of, but that but then by definition, like we are sort of divine in our creating, right? That, that 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 act of creation, however small it is, whether it's like cooking a meal or making a blanket or whatever, that that act of creation, that impulse to make things be is itself like a divine and holy impulse. And that's pretty much a base assumption where we're operating from actually. And I think you can come from that base assumption whether or not you believe in, and as you said, we're not gonna dwell here, but whether or not you believe in like a God that was like, ba-boom and made the earth, right? You can still believe that that sort of extra human impulse to um, participate in the longevity of existence, right? And to participate in the creation of being, that that is in of itself like a holy thing, right? Well, and it is instinctive. Even if you don't believe it's divine, it is so fully and wholly human. And and since I believe that to be human is to participate in the mystery of divinity, there's really kind of no separating these things out. But yeah, I'm glad that you pointed that out that we are assuming this as holy. And I would even say as um, sacred work. I mean, even the act of creating a meal for a family or, or making a blanket for a friend, like that that's, that is both holy and sacred work. And, and it is our work, it's what we do. Going back to other things, it's what we're called into. It does raise some interesting questions, right? Because I don't know about you, but like I move through my life and I do not think about making endless meals during the pandemic as a holy. And I do not think about like, um, you know, doing the laundry. Like there's, there's sort of like the, the things that we do that are actually acts of creation or sort of the perpetuation of being because they're caretaking acts, they become so sort of um, monotonous and rote that like they sort of lose I think very easily for us lose their sense of sort of wonder or holiness. Right? Like I remember being when I was like first learning to cook and it was like everything was magical and an adventure. And then I'm like, sweet God, someone buy me takeout, right? Like there's something that does not, they lose the wonder. And so there's also a part of this conversation I think will be thinking a little bit about how do we recapture our own identity as creators, right? And I think if you're someone who is an artist and regularly sort of thoughtfully participates in intentional sort of beyond the necessary creation that maybe that's easier. Like maybe you sort of have that built for you, right? Um, but for those of us who no longer do the art we used to, like me, there's, you know, you sort of lose that um, dual identification, right? Of yourself as, as being a creator. And yet we all are. Well, there's something um, powerful about being able to say I am an artist. I find many artists don't want to claim that. And almost as if to be an artist means that you're making a lot of money on it or have found some kind of fame doing it or that it has somehow been acclaimed. Right? I, my, my husband is a musician and writes music, has written six CDs, 
it took uh, and has supported our family making music for ever, right? For nearly as long as we've been together. And yet it took a long time for him to start saying things like that he's a musician, like professionally, that he's an artist, that he's, um, and he's a songwriter. He actually used um, the artist way, right? He went through that process. Now he's been through it a few times, but it was through that process of doing it with other people where he was like, I, I actually can claim this, but we all, I mean, I do it too, right? I would say, I'm not an artist. And yet, you know, I write every week. I write and I preach every week. I, I create theology. I create meaning. I create all kinds of things, but would never consider myself an artist, like that claim, which may have something to do with our sense of this is holy work and, and I don't belong in it, right? So it's a denial of our own divinity. It's part of a denial of our own claim. Well, and power, right? There's something about um, the, minute, the the notion, right, to, to sort of walk around and be like, I am a creator. <laughs> feels I giggle when I say it because it feels like, what am I claiming? Like, what am I claiming there if I'm like, I am a creator of things, right? And yet, <clears throat> I think that that is sort of exactly what we all are. Um, I think, you know, there's an interesting question here too for me about um, like sort of art, what is art, what is creation, and the sort of transience or permanence of these things, right? Um, so we were talking a little bit about, you know, this, you, you mentioned before that part of what is, you've been thinking about lately is how artists sort of make art and what that, what that creative kind of process is like. Um, and I think that we do tend to, in our Western monotheistic American culture, we think of art as like a thing that is like made to perfection and lasts forever and is like to be revered for all time, right? And like, I think we were, we were talking about a little bit about um, Michelangelo, right? And I think about, um, you know, if you've ever been to Florence and into that museum, the um, academy, you sort of walk down this hall of the partially finished slaves, right? That he was carving and he had this, and you can sort of see his notion of creation at work, which was this idea that like he looks at the block and like in the block is a thing waiting to be liberated, right? Like in that giant mass of marble, there's something that he sees, not because in his mind, right? Not because he's putting it there, but because it is there already waiting for the artist to bring it forth. And then we like take these things and we make them, you know, golden calves in a way and we put them in a museum and we're like you cannot touch them these are you know and so this question of what does it mean to have art that lives what does it mean to have art that cannot be changed or touched or um it's an interesting question yeah. well and we just juxtapose that to the mandalas right where it takes an enormous amount of time to create the whole team of people and they're spectacular and then the part of the art of creating it is the act of destroying it. And right, so unlike, I mean, you know, the Mona Lisa, which I've seen a good number of times at, at the Louvre is like behind glass and, you know, you, like there are all kinds of rules about seeing it and, and it's a thing. Unlike, you know, and then a mandala that is just swept away and, and released and let go. and the ways that that for me 
on the one hand is sort of horrifying right? <laughs> because I want to hold on to it. And on the other hand, it, it creates the possibility of something new, like what's next? Mm -hmm. So that for each of us to be the creator and the destroyer, and then we become the destroyer so we can become the creator again. Yeah, so just for anyone who doesn't know, right, mandalas are these sand images, essentially, right? They're very sort of very geometric usually, and there's a lot of layers of meaning about sort of time and um, the way that the universe works and unfolds and the cycles of being. Um, and it's, I'm not sure that it's limited to Tibetan Buddhist monks, but it's, that's, I mean, when I, in my experience, that's what I've, I've seen create them. Maybe we can link a video in our show notes. Um, but then, so after however long it takes of creating these sometimes small and sometimes huge, like intricate sand drawings, as Peggy said, they like literally just when it's done and all the sort of prayers are finished, you just sweep them up and they're gone forever, right? That's it. That's the end. Um, maybe you've taken a photo, but that's the end. Um, and that question of where is the holiness in the act? So in the mandala, the holiness is, is both in the creation and destruction. For Michelangelo, the holiness was in the uncovering, right? The liberating of the truth of the thing. Um, I don't know for like the Mona Lisa, who knows, right? But there's sort of an interesting where we take meaning out of a piece of art. Um, because we often talk, I mean, I don't know about you, but so I, I had art history a lot in my academic world. And one of the things we talk about is the difference between the intention of a piece's creation and the life that it lives after it's been created, right? Um, and so if we're talking about the sort of the holiness and the divinity of a thing or of the act, right? There's something about the act of creation that's holy. And then there's something about what happens to it afterwards as it interacts with others. Right, because once I start looking at Michelangelo's sculptures, I'm then co-creating something new past what he saw and envisioned. This is why like just everything we do is creation. Everything a human does. <laughs> right, because it does it everything, every act changes. Whatever it is we've created changes because we have interacted with it. Right. And that and there is something also about like where is the holy, and part of that is is in the gift itself, right? Whether we're talking about a fabulous sculpture or we're talking about a meal for our families, right? It's that there's a generosity, there's an impulse to being, um, to sharing and to creating for and for compassion. But I think is also part of this whole process of, of being the creator. Hey, that's really interesting. I had not thought about this. That, that piece about generosity has literally never occurred to me. So now I'm like very intrigued. Um, it makes me think, okay, so go with me for a second. I'm gonna like take us on a journey. Um, it makes me think about, um, and I wanna say maybe it's like Brene Brown and the question of sort of open-hearted living, which is to say, if the if the sort of the gift of creation is is in, or if the, if a piece of the holiness of creation is in the then putting the creation out into the world, whether that's temporary or in some permanent way, um, the part of what we're talking about is a sort of openness, right? A sort of like, I create not for my own sake, I create for sort of delivery unto the world as it were. Um, and that that then extends past the creation of physical things and into the creation of relationships, conversation, 
that sort of across the board, anywhere where you can do a thing that is generosity and open-heartedness, you're then creating something sort of holy in the giving of this. Does it make any sense? Oh, completely. And, and that, I mean, I'm trying to like get my brain into this, but that the, that the act of creating is holy and what it is you've created is holy. The act of receiving it is also holy, that these are, these are all ways that we are participating in the divine mystery. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So then I go back to um, one of the like most formative books for me in undergraduate, uh, in my undergraduate time was this book by Paul Tillich, The Courage to Be. Have we talked about this book ever? Um, like to the point where I was in like a first year class in seminary and they were talking about the books we were going to read. And the um, professor was like, has anyone ever read The Courage to Be? And I like raised my hand and he was like, well, and I was like, it's why I'm here. Like it literally is what like sent me off to seminary, right? And it's because what I took from it, this could be like the totally wrong interpretation of the book, but what I read in it, right, was this idea of what is, that my participation in the holy mystery is in large part about my discovering who I actually am and living that honestly in the world and inviting others to do the same, right? So that, that when we're talking about the creation and the art we're also talking about the creation of whole people right that like that part of my work as a, a being of creation is to become and to help other people become and that that all of that is the part of humanity that's sort of divine and and mysterious and holy and all of that becoming I just always come back to becoming I swear to god I preach a sermon on becoming like once every few months because it's like it just I I think in part because like we're doing right now I kind of circle and I circle and I can't quite you know but for it's like the heart of everything for me well and I suspect it's the heart of everything for anyone who's awake <laughs> I mean isn't that the human project of becoming who we are discovering our truest selves realizing it in the world and, and then creating, you know, love and possibility for everyone else. Yeah, it's an interesting, so I, I talk to my children a lot about, um, and I talk to my congregation a lot, about the sort of American, um, I don't use this phrase, but like American navel gazing. So I, I have this simultaneous feeling of like the project of humanity is to become ourselves and be whole in all our brokenness and let other people be whole in all their brokenness. And yet at the same time, the project is not to put that work above, like put my own work above all else to the point where I'm like the individualism, the selfishness, the greed like takes over, right? So there's this balance of like creation for my own sake is not enough, right? Or sort of my own becoming in isolation is not the project. Right, the no. project is mutual becoming, collective becoming, um, and that if we ever forget that, we're like slipping straight out of divine creation and into like satanic destruction. You know, <laughs> I'm teasing. I don't believe in Satan. The, we cannot be fully actualized if we are not creating just systems. I mean, it's part of you are not actually becoming if all you're thinking about is yourself. Narcissism is not divine. Like narcissism is the end of divinity. It's the end of the project. It's the end of, 
of being the creator, right? The creator co-creating is this act of generosity. It's about creating systems. It's about creating, you know, gardens from which people can eat. It's not about me. It's about how I am part of us and what we are going to be together. That, to me, that is the co-creation. So we are, it is about my becoming, but only insofar as it is about how we are becoming. Collective. Yeah. Yeah. I like that, right? Like the, the notion of sort of, um, I'm planting a tree so that I can have somewhere to sit under the shade. It's like not enough, right? Like that there's, um, that the impulse has to be something. And that's where that gift piece comes in, right? Like when I make a meal and I gift it to people or I, you know, use it to nourish others, right? Even as I'm also nourishing myself. Um, but the question too of like where destruction fits in, like the, the not becoming or the end of becoming, right? Or sort of what, is there such a thing as self-actualization, right? Like you use that phrase. I fundamentally don't believe that it's real. Like I think you can't ever get there. Um, in part because if you're actually committed to the process of creation, um, there's no end, there's no end point, right? Because new information is constantly being uncovered, right? New experiences are available to have. There's sort of a the idea that there's some moment when you're like done, right? Um, and I think even about like in Buddhism, the idea of enlightenment, right? You can sort of slip in and out of it. There's not sort of a like you've reached this point and forever and always now you're just like set and it's perfect and you're you're good to go, right? There's sort of like, there's constant sort of vigilance or meditation or just return to ways of creating that keep you tapped in. Reminds me of an early episode when we talked about like, or maybe it was just this season, my brain doesn't function well anymore. Uh, but we talked about like how you access a divine experience right? And you have to cultivate it, that it doesn't, you can't just sort of be like, I'm going to let, you have to actually cultivate these things. And so you have to cultivate your own becoming in mutual, you know, I love this stuff. <laughs> I get like so tangled up in my head about it, but I love it. It's like, it really gets me jazzed. Um, well, and it's also dangerous. It's dangerous for us to think like I have become, right? I, I am self-actualized. I am enlightened. And it's dangerous for us to project that onto other people. And to think this is, you know, that's where I'm going. That's perfect, right? This is the most spiritual person because it doesn't exist. And I know that people have projected that kind of thing. I think probably onto you too, onto ministers, sort of as a general. People have been projecting that onto me for a long time. And every time they do, I think, oh, this is going to be so painful. And and for me, like maybe for them too. But eventually, when I am clearly just human it becomes so painful to realize there there was no end point there was no finalizing nothing I didn't land I wasn't enlightened I'm not any different from anybody else I spend a lot of time thinking about you know big questions and that's about it the there is this sort of golden calf idea of like find find the one find the icon you know and land on that and right and just and to to want to know that someone is done so what's interesting is that exists in part because our vision of god has been as done complete perfect 
all powerful, all knowing, all loving, all the things, all, all the things, right? And we then sort of, we try to find that in the world. What would happen if instead of trying to find in the world some vision of perfect holy godliness, we looked at God as being an imperfect, in process, participant in creation, right? Um, and I come back to that poem because at the end of that poem, um, the lines are the thin-lipped armorer Hephaestus hobbled away, right? That's like part of the last stanza. And for me, that's like, okay, so this God who has built a world on this metal shield for this hero who's not gonna survive much longer, even he, even this God is hobbling away, right? Is, is imperfect in some vision of perfection, right? Um, and how would the world, if we suddenly were like, we're all creators along with the imperfect thing that exists in us and outside of us that maybe we call God or maybe we don't, right? If we got to that, how would the world change? Well, and this is the, the process theology we were talking about last time, right? The God not yet. And this idea, this desire for a God perfect, right? For the all knowing, what I call the sugar daddy in the sky, that there is there is that one, we desire that, but can we live in the uncertainty, in the imperfection of a God not yet? Which is also about our own not yet, yes, right? We are we are all in process, which is which is a much more complicated space to live in. And there are a thousand reasons people don't want to live there, but it may be what's most real. So I wonder, because I react, so I have two reactions. Like one is really positive to that, like God not yet phrasing, but then there's another part of me that it's the, that wants to sort of be like, but it's God not ever. And that, that's the even harder step to take, right? Is that like, so I, I think about this a lot too. We have a lot of conversations about like, what is beloved community or what is the promised land? Like, what do those look like in practice, right? And can we ever get there? And all the time, honestly, my answer is probably not because there will always be a step further to go. In, in other words, that like perfection is not a real thing. It's a, it's a ideal notion. So not yet has the suggestion of like, but eventually. And in my head, I sort of feel like, no, not ever, not ever because the process is process. And this is all very funny because I'm so goals oriented and I hate when people are like, it's all about the process. And here I am like theologically, it is all about the process. Um, but I just, you know, I, the idea that we are here and all we have to do is progress far enough along to here, right? Our producer Amy reminds me, right? Like linear time, this assumes this very Western notion of linear time, right? Like we're here, if we just get to here, then we can like, everything will be perfect. We'll have reached the promised land, beloved community, God will be great, we'll all be perfect. And like, that's not just like not a thing. Um, and the mandalas are really useful for that because they're all about cyclical time. And the whole notion in, um, you know, certain traditions is that the world is created and goes through stages and gets destroyed and recreated, right? Um. Well, and it's part of our idea then about perfection and not wanting to lose it, right? So we see, we see, a, you know, the, the David, right? And think, well, there it is. It is perfect. And 
created a museum, create a building, create a, and make sure it never ever gets touched. But then we become stagnant too, which isn't to say we should just smash all the beautiful things, but, but that there is a way to say, sometimes you need to dismantle something so something new can be born in its place, which yeah. is so hard to do, right? The letting go is so hard, but if, if you can't ever get to perfection, then we have to know we are not there now. And whatever it is that we have now is not perfect. There are things that are beautiful and we need to know and recognize and maybe hold on to some, but then we also need to move through it and, and create the next beautiful thing. Well, and my sort of slightly socialist heart <laughs> wants to say, that's true, not just of beautiful things, but whole systems, right? So it's not just the pretty statues in museums, it's also the statues out on the streets that call back to Confederate soldiers. It's also the systems of capitalism and oppression that, you know, we sort of, we, we think in terms of, we just have to keep building on the thing, building on the thing, inching closer and closer. And sometimes you have to just throw the whole thing away, start again, uh, and sometimes you can build, but that that this notion of like, we could go back to some golden moment in the past or that right now things are as good as they're ever going to get or whatever. Like that's not a lot. You've got to get all that out the window. Right. And this is, you know, we've, we've come around in a lot of our episodes this season to talking about the way that we envision God then impacts the way that we move through the world. And this is another place where that's true, that if you envision God as perfect, you're going to hold, first of all, you're going to develop a ton of shame because you're never going to be perfect the way you envision God being. And a lot of religious traditions push a lot of shame on their people. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually. Um, so on the one hand, the way that you look at yourself is always going to be as lacking because you're not Jesus. You're not God. You're not some perfect, right? Um, but it's also going to impact this, this notion of perfection is going to impact how you move through the rest of your world, not just sort of internally, but how you look at others and their failures and humanity, right? or how you look at art or how you look at systems. Um, I just think it'd be like hella liberating if we could get rid of the idea of the perfect God. And see ourselves as real co-creators and yeah. yeah. whatever it is that's that's next. Yeah. All right, let's make I, that happen. Let's get everybody <laughs> to do that. <laughs> so next, next week we're gonna be talking about, we're gonna kind of wrap all this up and it feels like all through this season we keep finding ourselves back in some of these same themes. So next week we'll be able to see if we could maybe tie it up in a little package. <laughs> or not, or not, because we don't have to arrive at the perfectly tied package. <laughs> process, it's a process. Um, yes, but yes, I have enjoyed this chat, Peggy. <laughs> it is good talking to you. See you next week. Okay, bye.